Our guest speaker today is extremely well positioned to speak on the residential real estate market in Canada, where it's been, where it is today, and where it's likely to go in the future. As the CEO of Brookfield Real Estate Services, comprised of Royal LePage, Johnston and Daniel, Via Capital, and Prudential Canada, he has for the past 12 years led these companies through one of the most unprecedented growth periods the industry has ever seen, but also guided them through extremely challenging times, such as the recession of 2008 and the setbacks that many markets faced during that period in the residential sector. Prior to joining Brookfield Real Estate Services, Phil was the chairman of Prestige Resorts and Destinations, and before that was the general manager and vice president of Brookfield Global Relocation Services. Earlier on in his illustrious career, he spent 17 years with IBM from 1984 to 2001, with four years during that period spent as the chair of a web and strategy company offering web and other interactive media consulting services. Now, his career has given him much more than a deep understanding of real estate markets. It's also honed his communication skills and made him realize the great power of being able to effectively reach various demographics. This key talent was recognized two weeks ago when Phil was awarded the CEO of the Year Award in Communications and Public Relations by the Canadian Public Relations Society, and we're very pleased to have the President of the Toronto Chapter with us here today. In his acceptance speech, Phil spoke of the fundamental importance of communication and business today, particularly in the CEO suite. He's also a firm believer in volunteerism and is the board, a board member of the Royal LePage Shelter Foundation and the Brookfield Real Estate Services Foundation, as well as being extremely active in the T3 Summit, an annual real estate CEO and thought leadership organization. Real estate is a subject that touches most Canadians, financially, socially, emotionally, and many would even say spiritually. It's a topic we've examined over the, many times over the 12 decades of speeches at the Empire Club, and we're very fortunate to have one of the industry's top players to provide us with an update at a time in our history when Canadians have never been more interested in this topic than they are right now. So ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming for the first time to the Empire Club of Canada, Mr. Phil Soper. Thank you, uh, thank you Mr. Chairman. Thank you, my head table guests. Uh, thank you to Deloitte for uh, sponsoring uh, today's uh, luncheon. Thank you to my uh, colleagues from Brookfield, chair of the board and the head of our audit committee here, listening very carefully. Uh, and to my uh, many colleagues from Royal Page, I see a number of you here and, and various other aspects of business life. It's really a, a pleasure to be able to share a, a few thoughts about this industry that many of us uh, hold uh, near and dear. Uh, speaking at the Empire Club is a, a very special thing for me. When I was a kid, I was in a, um, a very bad rock and roll band and I dreamed about playing at Massey Hall. And I know that will never happen. It just will never happen. Although we had a real estate fund uh, industry fundraiser and I played on this very stage about a month ago. So there you, there you go, to a much smaller crowd. Uh, anyway, uh, and I um, always wanted to speak at the Empire Club. So when, uh, 
when the uh, the club reached out and and offered the opportunity, I, I leapt at it, and hopefully, uh, I can share a few insights into uh, what my uh, colleagues and I and what I've I've learned. Uh, through uh, guiding Canada's largest real estate company and oldest real estate company uh, through uh, a very, a very uh, interesting uh, decade and uh, some, some incredible growth, uh, some incredible uh, challenges. I was recently interviewed by uh, a CBC reporter and it was difficult to get into the piece uh, because she uh, kept interrupting the rec recording with exclamations like, uh, you're kidding me, prices have to come down. Or uh, how do you deal with these multiple offers? And, and I know her producer wanted her to focus on, on macroeconomic factors. It was, it was supposed to be about uh, oil price declines and the impact of the interest rate decline, uh, uh, drop in the uh, target rate by the Bank of Canada. But what, what in fact was going on was she was recently married and she was trying to buy a house in Toronto. <laughs> And I see this again and again. Uh, the uh, real estate is something of a, a passion for people. Uh, and uh, in Canada, approximately 70% of us own our homes. But our research, and I'll touch on it a little later, shows that 85% of millennials, our first time buyers of today, uh, want to own their own homes. So is this great news or was such large market share, if you will, uh, are we at the top of the market and, and poised for uh, darker days ahead? This really is what my talk is about today, Canada's real estate market, uh, room for optimism, cause for concern. I'm going to begin by providing a snapshot of where we are today and where I believe we're, we're going in the immediate future. Uh, then I'll touch on some of the truth behind real estate forecasting. And I see some, some uh, famous Canadian economists in the audience, so, so uh, I'll, I'll avoid using a lot of numbers so you can't call me on them later. The, um, I'll explore both sides of the public policy argument behind supporting housing. We really have supported housing as, as good for the, uh, the, the, for the public good for uh, oh, 75 years in this country now. Uh, and uh, some would disagree with uh, putting, putting uh, public resources behind it. And I'll provide some insight into what I believe we have in store in the market longer term. And I'll finish with some insight into changes in the market, changes uh, that are driven through immigration, through demographics, and, and even through social change. So changes in who, is, who are buying homes and how that will impact our industry. If um, you're going to be buying a home in the short term in Canada, uh, there's good news and bad news. So assume you're a home buyer and you live in Toronto. Uh, You've struggled with down payment requirements, can, can always been, seem to be one step ahead of your ability to catch up to them. Uh, the the uh, dozens of properties you go to, if you do put in an offer, there's 14 others, and somebody always pays a ridiculous price for the home. So um, the bad news, that's not going away. Sorry, if you're a buyer. However, if you live in Montreal, where we currently have an oversupply 
of uh, properties uh, that were built in the post-recession uh, mini-boom there, uh, and where the pressures on, on uh, the market are much less, there, there will be some relief this year. And if you're a seller of real estate, you can flip that, that around. And I guess the message there is, uh, there's always a good side and a bad side in the transactions. Markets are either tight for sellers or tight for buyers, and, and real estate's a very, very uh, uh, local, local industry. The drivers of our market, affordability, and it's key to note that it's not the sticker price on a home, it's the carrying cost on a home that drives the behavior in the marketplace. And the number one driver of of carrying cost changes, of course, interest rates. So uh, there's probably no one change that we can see in the market that either slows or stimulates uh, activity than a change in the cost of money. Uh, confidence, both economic and uh, both employment and generally economic health, obviously is a is a a factor in whether our market's expanding or not. And then demand. Uh, population growth and demographic mix, the age of our population and, and where they are in their life cycle. So all these things drive the real estate market. I also thought it'd be good at the, the outset here to differentiate between the commercial market and the residential real estate market. Uh, our roller page commercial business can thrive in times when the, the residential market is, is uh, in a correction and vice versa. The real reason behind that is the value of commercial property is, is directly linked to the value of future rents, whereas residential prod, property is primarily consumption. And I think this is, this is something uh, that, that bears a, a, a repetition. Someone who is in the market and looking for a new home uh, will tell you that they're investing in real estate. And it is true, residential real estate over time in Canada has appreciated. It's been a, an appreciating asset. But shelter is a necessity. Food, clothing, and shelter are necessary to sustain life. And, and we should look at real estate, residential real estate, not predominantly as an investment decision, but as a, as a, as a necessity that everybody uh, has to, to deal with. And some people will tell you uh, that granite, countertops are a necessity too, and it's simply not worth going on without them, but I'll get it. I, this isn't a, a staging discussion. I wanted to, I said at the outset, I'd touch a little bit on uh, forecasting. It's uh, and a false notion. It's a false notion that real estate companies, large financial institutions, um, always predict positively. And I thought I'd give you a little bit of a a snapshot of what's happened over the last five years in terms of our calls on the market. So going back to 2010, um, I, I got headlines by declaring that Canadian home buyers were irrationally exuberant and uh, that they were paying too much for, for homes. That was in 2010. At the, um, a lot of people thereafter predicted that the market was, uh, was, was going to collapse, and I'll get back to that in a second. And we came out at the end of 2012 and predicted that no, contrary to talks of decline, the market was going to expand. By mid-2012, the headline on our release 
uh, big mid-year release was Canada's housing market at a tipping point. This is the middle of 2012. And at the beginning of 2013, brief, mild recession forecast for Canada's real estate market. Now, before those of you in the market are saying, my goodness, you are bad forecasters, um, I'll give you the mid-2003 headline, Canada emerges from housing correction nobody noticed. So our market does rise and fall. It's not always accompanied by, by significant changes in home prices, but the number of homes trading hands in our market rise and fall. And certainly if you were, by, if you were covering the auto industry, that would be the primary indication of the health of the market, how many, how many home, uh, cars are being sold. And the price of the cars are, are secondary. So the markets do rise and fall, and, uh, and we, as a real estate company and financial institutions, do try to get it right. In 2014, at the beginning of the year, um, uh, there was more calls uh, of, of dark days ahead, and I was quoted as saying, uh, there will be no hard landing, there will be no soft landing, there will be no landing at all. The market is set to expand again. And um, it did, and in fact, our forecast for 2014 was, was very close to the decimal point on, on how home prices resulted last year. But I thought I'd take a moment to talk about the, the negative side of uh, forecasting and uh, what I call economic hyperbole. Um, there's a, one particular firm in Canada that's been very bad at this. It's a British firm. Uh, they've been grasping at headlines for about five years now with the same end of the world prediction that house prices were going to collapse by 25% this year. House prices are going to collapse by 25% this year. And if we go back to when they made that first prediction and we, we looked at what has happened over, the, it's actually between four and five years, home prices have appreciated by 20%, you add that 25%, so really they'd have to decline by 45% for them to be correct. If they were a hockey coach or a CEO with such a dismal record, they would have been fired ages ago. My, my point being, um, there, there is, an, you actually can hurt people by producing uh, forecasts that are, are designed to just gather headlines. And I think any responsible organization really does need to look out into the future and, and call what they do see. And we try to do that. On a national level though, home prices do not decline very often. If you go back over the last 35 years, they've declined four times on a national basis and each one for a short time, typically less than 12 months. Um, and, and so a soft landing in our industry is typically not, not a landing at all. It really means that price appreciation is less than the prevailing long-term rate. Um, and, and we need that to happen because when home prices rise at a higher, a faster rate than underlying rise in wages and salaries, affordability gets strained. So, so we do have these cycles where, where uh, home prices appreciate at less and more than the long-term average. And I'll get to what that is and what we think is happening with that in the future in a second. But there is problems, obviously, with home ownership in Canada. The most obvious one is leverage. High debt levels uh, put people at risk 
when interest rates rise. Even if they can afford to carry the debt today, if interest rates arrive markedly, uh, they would put people at risk. People may have relied too heavily on the equity in their home for retirement, which could de decrease if house prices could decline. And of course, the same could be said of, of, of any investment like uh, uh, stock prices. And what we don't want is our citizens serving de servicing debt instead of ser uh, saving for, for retirement. There are other more subtle downsides to public policy that supports housing. And those became uh, abundantly clear, clear during the American financial crisis. The most, the most uh, interesting one, is, as far as I was concerned, was the, the way it interfered with, the way uh, home ownership interfered with labor portability. So in America, um, during the six-year decline uh, of their financial systems and their housing market, many people ended up with, uh, with homes they could not sell. Yet they were anchored to those homes and they were stuck in, say, Cleveland when there were, when there were uh, jobs in Texas. And uh, there were those that examined this quite, quite carefully. It's more pronounced in the United States because there's more major centers of employment there are, than there are in Canada, but it can be a drag on uh, home ownership, can be an anchor if, if, uh, because homes aren't by their nature liquid. The other downsides of home ownership are, are um, the stuff for, for magazines. Uh, there were stories of uh, neighborhoods in Phoenix and Las Vegas that were built and uh, people ended up underwater owing more than they owned on the hose and, and house after house being deserted, leaving their swimming pools full and uh, serving as breeding grounds for mosquitoes and the proliferation of West Nile disease. How's that one for a, a, a weird little sideline side for um, the downside of housing? But I think we have to remember when we, when we talk about these sort of things that there's a difference between good debt and bad debt. And if you believe in the underval underlying uh, value of our housing stock, Mortgage debt is good debt. It's debt that leads to, an, uh, to support the acquisition of an appreciating asset. Which brings me to the differences between the United States and Canada, because they are significant. As I said earlier, the downturn in the American housing industry really was a failure of their financial system with housing as a victim. We have much more conservative uh, lending practices than, than the Americans did, and. Uh, mergingly do, and structurally we're very different. Uh, the U.S. non-recourse uh, against homeowner policy would, would allow people to walk away from a home if they owed more on the home than, than the, bank, uh, the bank was owned. And you just can't do that effectively in Canada. It has happened in Alberta in the past, but it's, it's, it's a very rare occurrence. And finally, the subprime market, which is really the market in which you lend to the less creditworthy uh, people, while it does exist in Canada, and we've seen some growth in it, it's a tiny little fraction of the overall housing market, whereas it was a very significant part of how lending was done in America before the crash. So let me turn to an immediate forecast, looking out to 2014. Uh, 
we had concluded in a 2000, or looking out to 2015, we had concluded in a 2014 uh, forecast before the oil price declines that the market had peaked and we were in for a, uh, a period of slower home price appreciation. Um, there were markets that were continuing to defy gravity. Really, it came down to three, Toronto, Calgary, and Vancouver. Most of the country was uh, moving forward at a much more moderate uh, pace. We believe that independent of, of oil prices and interest rate changes, that there is a, a broad moderating trend that's, that's pushing housing into lower activity levels and lower, lower house appreciation levels. During the, uh, the last quarter, the average price of a home in Canada, though, did increase markedly, between 4.5 and 6.7%, according to the Royal Page Survey of Canadian Home Prices. Uh, to give you an idea what homes are worth on a national basis, bungalows, 406,000 standard two-story homes, 445,000 uh, con standard condominiums, $258,000. Of course, those in the room, most of you live in Toronto, those would seem like bargains, wouldn't they? In fact, if you're in a Vancouver audience right now, you'd think Toronto prices would seem like bargains. In, tr in Vancouver proper versus Toronto proper, home prices are about 50% higher in Vancouver. And in fact, if you were to look at our, our latest results, you can buy about nine standard two-story homes in Moncton for one in Vancouver. So Canada is a market of local markets. And I guess what I'd like you to take away in terms of pricing is there is very little, little evidence of strained affordability outside of Toronto and Vancouver cores. And even in our suburban markets, we see relief in the greater Vancouver area of the Lower Mainland and uh, when you move outside of, uh, uh, of Toronto. The recent freefall in the value of oil uh, has impacted um, our national housing market. Uh, with some, we saw it as a drag, and with some, we actually saw it as a mild stimulus. Specifically, in the province of Alberta, Saskatchewan, Saskatchewan and Newfoundland, we saw uh, the dropping oil prices to be uh, a direct hit on consumer confidence and would result in, in the removal of transactions from the housing market. On the other hand, in central, uh, central Canada, particularly in Ontario, slightly less in Manitoba and uh, uh, Quebec, we see lower oil prices as actually a mild stimulus for uh, our economy and by extension, um, the housing market. As we look out to 2015, um, we forecast home prices in Toronto will rise by 4.5% this year. That compares to the 7.5% we saw in 2014. Um, we believe that the, the, impact, the, the slowdown would have been more uh, dramatic if it had not been for the drop in the price of oil. Uh, our strength in ex export economy uh, should benefit from um, uh, America's strongest period of economic growth and labor force expansion in 15 years. Uh, over 3 million people have joined the workforce in, uh, in the last uh, 13 months alone. Uh, further, a relatively weaker Canadian dollar makes our goods and services 
uh, bargains south of the border, increasing uh, company sales and, and bolstering consumer confidence uh, here at home. And finally, a, a, a subtle point, we have unsatisfied consumer demand in Toronto. All of those multiple offers in which you have buyers that have been shut out again and again and again in these bidding wars um, haven't decided that they don't want a home. They just haven't been successful in, in, in call it an eBay-like uh, bidding practice. And we feel when the market slows, some of them will use that opportunity to come back in the, in, into the market. So let me talk about long-term expectations. Over recent decades, Canadian home prices have appreciated at about 5%. Today, with inflation so low, uh, and therefore modest increases in wages and salaries, we should be experiencing lower home price increases. Put another way, if uh, today's homeowners uh, saw um, a 4% increase in the value of their homes, they'd be just as well off as, as the homeowner, homeowners of the past. As the uh, North American economy continues on its long, slow but steady recovery, um, more people are working and more people are earning more. Relative to the, the, the growth in wages and salaries, home prices have appreciated too quickly in places like Toronto and Vancouver. Uh, affordability has eroded and we expect those, the, the pace of appreciation to slow. But will prices collapse as a few have prophesied? This seems highly unlikely in a future characterized by low, maybe not uber low or historically low, but low uh, interest rates and a healthy economy, which is what we see. Of course, the surprise cut to the central bank target rate will support housing in general. And in fact, even in the province of Alberta, in the city of Calgary, we believe that the, uh, the drop in in retail mortgage rates, which we believe we'll see uh, this spring, uh, will uh, mitigate the impact of the, uh, the, the blow to consumer confidence in uh, our energy capital. The citizens of Calgary are a resilient lot. They're used to yo-yo changes in their market where prices rise and fall rapidly. And they're actually very uh, quick to get back into the market if they feel their, their jobs aren't at risk. So let me talk uh, just uh, for a second about the, what this 4% this, uh, number means, the long-term appreciation number. How can home prices appreciate for greater inflation over the long term? You'd think that that wouldn't, wouldn't be possible, particularly if you believe wages and salaries will attract inflation. By its nature, real property is a scarce commodity. You can understand this best when you think about recreational property. Uh, far and away, waterfront is the most desired uh, feature when buying a cottage, a cabin, a chalet across the country, but they're not making any more of that. It's, uh, it's restricting you think, well, we have endless lakes and water in Canada, but the key is they have to be close to where people live to have any value. Before the 2008 recession, our research showed there were seven buyers for every two recreational properties for sale in Canada. The, um, if we look at urban real estate, we can see the same sort of uh, thing happen. As our commute times grow, as our, as our cities become larger, uh, people move 
people will pay more to live closer to the center of, uh, of, of their urban environments. And as such, we see a greater appreciation in the cores of our cities than the under, underlying rate of inflation. And cities expand, they push out. Now sometimes they're interfered with uh, by geography in the case of Vancouver, or public policy in the case of the Greenbelt in the, in the GTA, and that artificially reduces uh, supply and pumps up demand. And all of these things support greater than inflationary increases in, uh, in, in real property over time. It also results in a change to our housing mix. In 2013, a line was crossed in Canada, and we joined other uh, advanced nations in becoming a condo nation. If you look ahead uh, for the foreseeable future, the number of, of condominium units that are built compared to detached units will, will continue to grow. And over time, our housing mix will move more and more to shared resource living. Of course, this is exactly the way most advanced economies uh, live in their cities. Uh, detached homes are a rarity in Europe, for example. Uh, and, but with it comes a lot of societal change. Uh, uh, Alex and, uh, and I were talking yesterday about micro condos and the, uh, the uh, thousands of units that are on the tables in Vancouver and, and Toronto for uh, to, as, as small as 250 square feet. This uh, re results in, in, in very different mixes of uh, the kinds of people we see in the neighbor, neighborhoods we have, and in general, if it's managed properly, should result in uh, just uh, much healthier, more vibrant urban core markets. And over time, we've seen a number of these, these uh, significant changes. If you look over the last 25 years, 25 years ago, 73% of the transactions that occurred were to married couples, and that's down to, to 65%. Women have grown by 50% in terms of their participation rate in buying homes uh, independently. In fact, uh, in our, in our uh, recent female buyers report, we showed that young uh, female buyers were the fastest growing demographic of any buyer category in Canada. So while they were out buying homes, guys still were buying cars and stereos. So some things have never changed. Um, commute costs have become increasingly more important. 63% uh, of people worried about it 25 years ago, 70% today. And for those who are in the industry, the real estate industry, 82% of people 25 years ago used a licensed insured agent. That number's climbed to 88% today. First time home buyer motivation is also uh, changing. Uh, it, it's interesting um, to note that they really are the key to a healthy market because they typically um, account for about 40% of the transactions that occur. In a recent study that we did of first time home buyers, 81% uh, cited, or 86% said interest rates were the, the, fa the number one driver, 81% home prices, 76% job security, 64% stable economy. Interest rates, price, job, economy. And, and, uh, and as in general, what this is driving 
is uh, a change in the mix of who's owning our homes and buying our homes. In fact, the number of transactions that are coming out of the same size of population is growing. If you, a recent British study showed that over the last two decades, uh, the number of people per household has, has moved almost a full person down, from about 2.2 down to 1.2 people uh, per house, uh, household. Um, unconventional uh, partnerships, singles, uh, friends, many different groups are buying homes. It's not just those, the, the married that we talked about earlier. And immigration is changing the way that uh, homes are bought in our country. New Canadians are less likely are, are slower to buy a home. It takes them longer after they're in the home buying age category. But once they're into homes, they're twice as likely to be in home ownership and uh, much more likely to buy a, a condominium, uh, likely because they came from countries where condominium living was uh, the standard. And even generational shifts are changing the mix of what we, what we see in uh, housing, and some of our predictions were simply wrong. Baby boomers, in a recent study we did on baby boomers versus millennial buyers, um, were expected to desert the suburbs in droves. And in fact, this doesn't appear to be happening. Uh, almost half, 45%, uh, were looking for their next purchase to buy a home of the same size or larger. And when you peel back the cover on why they're doing that, it, it has to do with really three things. One, guys. That trend that I talked about earlier where women are more sensible about getting into real estate earlier, guys are even less sensible when they're older and they want bigger homes when their kids are fled the, uh, fled the nest. Why? Place for toys. They just don't have a, pl a place to put the motorcycles and the sedus and the workbench they never use. Um, in, in their, uh, their condo storage locker. And kids. Uh, kids are boomeranging back into homes at double the rate of the previous generation. So we're talking about the Generation Y here. Generation Y, how, what do they feel about real estate? So these are our first time home buyers. An overwhelming 85.7% uh, agreed with the statement, I do not, uh, uh, or, agreed that they wanted to own property during their lifetime and it was preferable to renting. And that, those numbers though were skewed and you can see the skew based on affordability. 90.5% of Quebecers, these are Gen Ys, young people, uh, wanted to own their homes and that dropped to about 80% in BC, our most expensive market. Trust, however, in real estate and our real estate market remains very high. 80.3% of Generation Y believes in, the, uh, in real estate as a good investment and 88.7% of baby boomers. Uh, as a matter of fact, if you dig into um, the differences between Gen Y and baby boomers, you'd find many more similarities than you do find differences, including their love of the suburbs. We, we believed uh, that with the rise in the number of young people living in our downtown cores, there'd be a corresponding fall in the desire to live in suburbs, but our, our uh, research into baby boomers who uh, start families say they want to live in uh, the suburbs uh, with almost the same degree 
of uh, desire that their parents, the baby, bo baby boomer uh, generation did uh, uh, 25 years earlier, which uh, probably explains why we haven't seen declines in the value of our suburban property. We've got baby boomers who aren't getting out of the way because they want places for their kids who haven't left yet and their toys. And we've got young couples who want to move from downtowns into the burbs to raise their families. It's a very fascinating uh, industry, the real estate industry. Uh, I, uh, I'm often asked, you know, when's it all going to end? Uh, how can you continue to be optimistic? But I believe if you're an optimist for Canada and you're an optimist for the Canadian economy, you're an optimist for the Canadian housing industry. We have an educated workforce, abundant natural resources, strong fi uh, financial institutions, and an immigration uh, that uh, outstrips almost all leading uh, Western nations. Brand Canada is a very strong brand in the world. And all of this points back to supporting the housing industry. I was I've been involved in some interesting debates uh, about the, the housing industry. One of the more interesting one was a fellow, um, a TV debate with a fellow by the name of Richard Florida, who uh, spoke very strongly during the American uh, recession uh, against home ownership, although he told me privately he owned three homes. But that's beside the point, <laughs> academic versus actual. Uh, and uh, part of his arg argument was that citizenship did not align to home ownership. And in fact, if you look abroad, if you look at Switzerland, if you look at Germany, where home ownership rates are, are closer to 50% rather than 70% or even lower in Switzerland, it is true. But in Canada, I believe, uh, and in America, that uh, owning a piece of the land uh, dates right back to our, our pilgrim DNA, uh, the, the, the homesteading nature of uh, who we are. And uh, the, the, the research does show that homer, homeowners retire richer, healthier, and happier than those who, who are not. And with that, I'd like to thank you for your attention and turn things back over to our chairman. Thank you very much, Phil. And Phil has uh, graciously agreed to, uh, to take some questions. And we actually have, a, I believe, a roving microphone. So there's Taylor and her team, and they have microphones. So if anyone has a question, just raise your hand, and we will find you. Phil, with the um, GTA housing market, what uh, impact uh, does the Greenbelt have on that? So the impact of both policy and um, natural barriers to sprawl have a couple of impacts. One is, very, one is very positive. It makes us make more effective use of limited resources. Uh, there is nothing that is a less effective use of sewage, water, power than sprawling uh, suburban acreages. They're lovely, but they use a lot of resources per human being. So uh, density is in fact, uh, uh, I believe, uh, good for the public good. In terms of the real estate market itself, it clearly uh, restricts our ability to meet demand, particularly for single family homes. But you, can use, you can always go up, and that's what we've been doing in Toronto, but you can no longer go out. So I believe we have, uh, 
We have structural uh, uh, long-term uh, shortage, supply shortage built into the single family home inventory in Toronto. And we'll see uh, over the long-term larger home price increases in Toronto than other cities as a result. Phil, excellent uh, presentation. I'd be interested in asking a question on the federal government's recent moves over the last year or so to tighten down on the availability of mortgage money. They had opened it up a little bit. You saw the growth of, you know, the 5% down, allowed a number of first-time buyers to get in the market. Federal government saw what was happening in the U.S. I think incorrectly they overreacted in, in uh, Canada, and I'd be interested in your thoughts on it. So more, more the, the tightening of access to insured mortgages. So in general, I support the move. Uh, I, mentioned, I mentioned earlier that the, the, the growth in indebtedness had risen at a faster rate than uh, other general economic uh, indicators, and it, and it, and it is, is troublesome. I think the key is the timing. So if you look at, say, the, the, the four key ones that were done, uh, and then you go back to, to 2007, and you look at the timing of a, a, a liberal move, when amortization periods were increased and down payment requirements were declined. That was done at the peak of the expansion. So I called it at the time throwing a fire or gasoline onto a fire. It was a hot market uh, and it needed no stimulus. And it was done really, uh, I believe, in response to the liberalization of, of, of lending practices in the United States. And it was, a, it, was, it was silly timing. But then we got into the post-recession period where there, there was that irrational exuberance. And I believe the measures that were taken were, were uh, the right ones. They, were, they weren't heavy-handed. Uh, they slowed the market, uh, but they didn't kill the recovery because we were very much still worried about economic recovery, even if we weren't worried about the housing market recovery. And the residential housing market played a very important role in Canada's uh, rebound from the 08-09 recession. But in terms of timing, the last change that was implemented was also poor timing. I believe it was call it politically motivated, uh, came at a time when the market was clearly slowing. I talked earlier about the, uh, the correction that nobody noticed. Um, the number of uh, transactions were falling. The, the rate of price appreciation was, was falling. And so sometimes uh, these public policy changes in, in, in areas like this uh, can be very helpful and, and sometimes uh, uh, they're out of step with what's really happening in the marketplace. Hi, thank you for the presentation, by the way. You're welcome. Uh, my question is for Western Canada, uh, specifically the Calgary, Red Deer, and Edmonton market. Uh, Grand Prairie, Fort McMurray has laid off over 40,000 people in the last four months. Mm -hmm. So the fact that they're resilient, uh, et cetera, is very optimistic. Uh, it, they have been directly, thousands of homes have been impacted, and I have received notice from some of my investment properties. My tenants are giving 60-day notice because they're good people, hardworking, but they've been laid off. Uh, is Royal LePage specifically making any studies to get some stats uh, to keep us current with the market in the West? Uh, so two parts to your question. One, one in terms of the information available, and, and yes, we report regularly on what's happening in uh, Alberta, and you can find that at rollapage.ca. In terms of uh, Alberta overall, Alberta was late to the recessionary recovery. 
So uh, home prices didn't start to rise until really 2012 in, in Alberta, uh, whereas the rest of the country, it, ha it started in 2010. Uh, so there's, there, and yes, we saw some greater than inflationary increases in home prices there over the 12 to 14 time period, a very, very short time period, but not as great as tr uh, Toronto or Vancouver. So really, we're not overpriced in the Alberta market. The, so price is not an issue. The other thing that will mitigate uh, the downside is uh, there was a chronic shortage of properties available. So uh, the vacancy rates as low as anywhere in the country, except perhaps uh, uh, Regina, uh, Saskatoon, uh, and uh, uh, the, the multiple offer problem in, in Calgary uh, was a great one. So there, there's a lot of excess demand. I would wait uh, through the true spring market to get a feel for the, the, the impact of the uh, job reductions in Alberta. Many of the big numbers we're hearing are in fact the projected hiring of canceled capital projects as opposed to actual people that are working today that won't be working tomorrow. So I think we need to see the, the, uh, the market uh, roll into true spring and see if there are people that are confident enough in their jobs uh, that they, they're gonna take advantage of a, a little break in the market to actually buy a home. Um, or if, in fact, we're looking at a significant uh, and uh, uh, extended downturn for the Alberta market, which is possible, particularly if the uh, consumer confidence is aligned with very low, uh, the, the, the feeling that low, low oil prices will prevail, prevail for uh, an extended period of time. Bill, I'm going to sneak a question in here. Just, um, I, I don't see any other hands up right at the second. Um, there's, there's a lot of, oh, okay, oh, sorry, you're next. Um, I just, uh, we, we hear a lot of economists referring to these overvalued markets in Vancouver, Calgary, and Toronto, and you always wonder what they're benchmarking against to come to those those uh, comparisons of those comparables. I mean, is, is it, you know, Chicago is more or less the same size as Toronto. Is that what they're comparing to? And isn't that apples and oranges when you get into those type of comparisons? Yeah, no, a very good question. And if you, if you think back to my comparison of a Moncton versus a Vancouver house, it really, to me, it, it hammers home just how different real property is, is valued. Because I can tell you, a teacher, an engineer, uh, doesn't make nine times more in Vancouver than they do in Moncton. You're just poorer. And in fact, if you were to turn to our friends at, 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 at TD Bank or Royal Bank or something and look at their affordability uh, data, you'd see affordability of homes is, is radically different in, in uh, different parts of our country. It can be, it can be uh, as low as 30% of, of uh, uh, disposable income goes to principal interest taxes, uh, utilities in Atlantic Canada, and 75% or even higher in, in parts of Vancouver. Imagine spending 75% of what you have um, uh, just to put a roof over your head. But people are willing to do it, and, and, and they're willing to do it in places like San Francisco and New York and Mumbai and, and other uh, great cities in the world. And if you, if you step back and you look at the price of a home, a suburban home in Surrey or Burnaby 
or White Rock or some of the suburban uh, areas the same way that we're familiar with the, the prices in Oshawa um, uh, or Burlington versus uh, down uh, uh, Forest Hill or something. You know, there's there are alternatives in Canada, uh, and that's what keeps home ownership rates up. But it, 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 one thing, I'll, and just a little extension to that, it is not foreign ownership. So there's, there's a feeling that foreign ownership in Vancouver is what's, what's uh, driven uh, home prices so high. CMHC uh, did an excellent job uh, recently of sort of ferreting out the actual level of, home, of foreign ownership in our big cities. And even in Vancouver, it's less than 2.5%. It's uh, between two and a half, two and a half percent in, in Toronto, and in our other cities, it's it's well well less than one. So it is Canadians. Now they may be immigrant Canadians, or they may be Canadian-born Canadians that are that are buying the majority of these properties and driving uh, prices where they're going. Um, I've been trying to think of how to word this, and it's an extenuating extenuation of our conversation over lunch. So I hope you're partly clairvoyant. Um, I'm wondering. With, would urban policy, especially as it relates to things like social housing and what's happening with the real estate market, have any sort of um, adv advantage if it was somehow done to help with those who are the working poor, the hard to house, the artists, et cetera, in our market? Yeah. Um, let me take this uh, social policy, uh, policy as it relates to, to housing. Uh, I'll take it a slightly different way. I mentioned micro condos earlier. So we're, we're looking for a change in public policy to actually allow condominiums to be built as small as the market's demanding them. So in some of our municipalities, you can't build anything under 400 square feet, for example. And the market really says you have to get down to 250 to uh, hit the price point that makes sense in some of our big cities. So it is happening. We're, we're seeing a, a policy change that allows young people to live where they want. Young people and people that can't afford a larger house. But, and this is, this is a, an interesting uh, other side of the coin, and w where you have to look forward 10 or 20 years, when you're, when you, because when you build these, these projects, they are there for a very long time. Uh, the far-sighted planners in our big cities are starting to look at the other side of the equation. When you get these young people that meet other young people and they start families, and you can't live in 250 square feet anymore. So the market today is for units of this size. And there's, there's a real dearth of even two-bedroom units, let alone three-bedroom units. So we need to look ahead and say, if we're going to have vibrant communities that survive change in demographics and swings in populations um, and support uh, uh, children and schools and things, we need today to start uh, legislating builders to include two and three building units, a certain number of them, in our, in our, our projects and not just create these, uh, these massive towers of, of uh, shoebox condos. Um, the, maybe another, just a, a, a short extension to that, uh, and, and feeding off something we talked about at lunch. Um, I'm a big believer in the, the use of the, the arts to grow healthy um, inner, inner cities. We, um, we see excellent examples around the world, Dublin's often used as one, that uses um, income tax policy 
uh, and other forms of tax credit policy to create artist districts, to bring, to bring people into the city cores and allow them to afford to live uh, in an area where uh, they just couldn't live any other way. Um, the challenge is, and the people that live in the beach will tell you this, if you go back 20 years ago, it was a cool place to live, and now it's full of rich yuppies. So, you know, the, the problem is people want to live around artists and, and cool people, and then they raise property prices, and then over time, the artists can't afford to live there anymore. So it's a moving target, but I think it's a, it's a worthwhile one for our uh, uh, city fathers, our, our uh, urban planners to, to look at, because uh, it's with that kind of forethought that we'll have healthy, thriving cores, and we won't cycle back into where we were in the 70s and 80s with, with uh, dead and empty uh, downtowns uh, after people went home to, from work. Please, uh, please welcome Mr. Ciro DeSantis from Deloitte to thank our speaker today. Thank you, Gordon. Phil, thank you for your comments and uh, reflections today. They were insightful, uh, particularly as they relate to the most, that most significant part of our economy that all of us interrelate with most uh, personally in terms of how we measure our, our own personal wealth as a primary indicator of the current and future health of our economy and of the country generally. And uh, as you said earlier, in a very personal context as the places where we live and undertake the most basic activities of life. And as representatives of Deloitte, and in particular the, uh, Delo our Deloitte real estate team, both Sheila and I are very thankful of the opportunity to sponsor today's event. And we are very proud to have Brookfield Real Estate Services and the broader Brookfield Group as a very important client of our firm. So thank you again, Phil, and to the Empire Club for the opportunity to share this time with you uh, at this great event. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ciro, and thank you to Deloitte for, uh, for sponsoring today's event. We'd also like to thank the National Post as our print media sponsor, and of course, we'd like to thank Rogers as our broadcast uh, media sponsor. This, will be, this uh, speech you'll be able to hear on television on several occasions over the, uh, the weeks to come. Uh, please follow us on Twitter at empire underscore club and visit us online at www.empireclub.org. Thank you all for coming, and please join us again on March the 5th when we have Mr. Merrick Gertler, the president of the University of Toronto. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. This meeting is now adjourned. <laughs>